name above all names. It's our privilege to search the scriptures, for in them they testify of Jesus. So this morning we're going to pick up on our theme of the gospel according to Isaiah, the gospel according to Isaiah. Isaiah 40, I asked you to check that out last week. If you did, you discovered that Isaiah spoke about the forerunner of Jesus, the one who was crying in the wilderness to prepare the way for the Lord, make straight his path. And uh, John was the one who had the honor and the privilege of all the prophets to be the one to introduce the Lamb of God to the nation of Israel. And what a privilege that was to behold the Lamb of God who was to take away the sins of the world. Jesus came, I said last week, with that ID photo, if you will, of the composite sketch uh, of all the prophets, uh, beginning with, with uh, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. And all through the prof- prophetic scriptures, 340, he came with the identification of his being the Messiah, son of the living God. He said to his generation, search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, but they testify of me. And so he challenged them to, as we just looked at, the, just the scrolling through some of those scriptures, they identified Jesus. And so that's why we're calling this the gospel according to Isaiah. And we began last week at the end of chapter 52 and into chapter 53. I ask you to think of it as the, the overture, the musical overture the musical overture was the introduction of all that was to follow in, in the evening. And so the, the overture for, for this prophetic, powerful, profound portion of Scripture is, is found at the beginning, then or rather at the end of Isaiah 52 and continuing on into Isaiah 53. I want you to think of Jesus as the ultimate fighter, uh, Jesus as the, the ultimate champion of hero of of heaven that jesus the the captain of our salvation who has come out of his infinite love and courage to be the savior of mankind and it's because of that we want to know him more we want to love him more we want to serve him more because he inspires us so we're going to look this morning at uh, Isaiah 53, once again, we're going to go over some of the same scriptures, but ask the Holy Spirit to bring us deeper into the meaning and the significance of, of what's being said here. So let's pray one more time. Father, I ask that the Holy Spirit, who's been called the Spirit of truth, who will take the things that are of Christ and reveal them unto us, would open up the eyes of our understanding, would give to us the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him, so that we would behold his majesty and his beauty and his splendor that was concealed before others, O oh God, but revealed to the, to the babes in Christ, to, to those that Jesus rejoiced in, that, Father, you've hid these from the wise and the prudent, but revealed them unto babes. Would you do that this morning and give us revelation? And we said together, amen, amen. Isaiah 53, verse 1, Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, familiar with suffering. Like one from whom we hid their faces, he was despised. We esteemed him not. Surely he took our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, 
and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. Who is going to believe this? Who is going to believe our report? Who is going to believe our message? The heart of the gospel is all about believing. It's all about faith. It's all about believing that which has come to pass. And so Isaiah asked the rhetorical question, who shall believe our message? And I think that implied in the question is the very thought that many will not believe. Some will believe, but many more respectfully or representatively will not believe. Who is Isaiah talking about when he uses the word our? Who will believe our report? I believe he's talking about the sum of all of the prophetic messengers that came declaring the word of God. Our is the, is the composite of all of the, the prophets that God raised over centuries, over the span of the recording of the word of God, beginning in Genesis 3.15 when God said that there was going to be one who was going to come who was going to crush the head of the serpent. In the shadow of the failure of Adam and Eve, God promised that there would be a deliverer who would come, one who would crush the very head of the serpent. But that this would be the arm of the Lord. That this would be the strength of God and the power of God and the might of God. When, when God, listen, when God created the universe, how did he do it? He, he did so by the, spoke, the speaking of his word. He spoke light into existence. He spoke matter, which was non-existent before that. In the beginning, God said, and God brought out of, out of the power of his word, he brought the universe into existence. I mean, that, that is beyond, right, understanding or comprehension. But when it comes to bringing about the plan of salvation, God says, I need a power of another kind, and I picture God, you know, kind of rolling up his sleeve and bearing his holy arm. And the arm of the Lord is to be revealed. But this is more, listen, this is more than God flexing his muscles. This is the very strength of God in, in what I call a cosmic irony. It's a cosmic irony because the power of God and the strength of God is displayed in weakness, in and what I said last week is the oxymoron or the paradox of Christ crucified. Messiah, when you think of the word Messiah, you think of the word splendor and majesty and conqueror. The very hope of Israel was that, was that, was that the Messiah would come and throw off the shackles, throw off the, the bondage of, of imperial Rome. And so to say Messiah crucified is a contradiction of terms, but here is the power of God, the strength of God, the wisdom of God displayed in utter foolishness and in utter weakness. I love the way Paul puts it. He says, if God were weak, then the weakness of God would be stronger than the strength of all men. If God were foolish, then the foolishness of God would be wiser than the wisdom of men. There's no comparison. There is a cosmic irony for us that this same Jesus would be a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense 
If you remember when he was eight years old and dedicated in the temple, Simeon comes over, picks up the child and says, this child is set for the fall and rise of many in Israel. And a sword, he said to Mary, shall pierce your own soul. As a sign to be spoken against, a rock of offense, a a cause of stumbling. So that Isaiah 53 is not the only prophetic voice that spoke about the rejection of Jesus. And yet I've got to ask the question, why? Why such animosity? Why such despisement? Why such hatred against, against Jesus, you know? I mean, think about it. Why was he so hated? Because he gave bread to those that were hungry. He healed the sick. He raised the dead. He did these wonderful, incredible things. And yet, Isaiah tells us that he would be despised and rejected of men. The prophetic voices in the Old Testament spoke about how that he would be rejected. Here's a verse I want to share with you up on the screen. Psalm 118, verse 22. I'm sure you're familiar with it because you've run into this verse Many times in the New Testament, if you've read through the New Testament, the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Who is the hour there? The hour eyes is the prophetic voices. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. I remember like 30-something years ago, one of the most popular songs that was being sung in, in, in Christian churches all across Long Island, all across, the, all across the nation was, this is the day, this is the day that the Lord has made, that the Lord has made. It was so simple, you know, and yet it was so thrilling. We would come into the presence of God with praise and thanksgiving, singing, this is the day that the Lord, but this is what Isaiah, rather, this is what the psalmist is talking about, that the day that the Lord has made that we find joy and gladness in it is in the rejection of the Son of God, is in the rejection of the chief cornerstone. And while it's involved with human responsibility, human beings rejected the Son of God, yet it says in the middle verse, verse 23, is that, that the Lord did this. And it's marvelous in the eyes of the, of the prophets. It's, it's the reason, it's the source of our joy. Psalm 118, this, this particular verse is quoted five times in the New Testament, once respectively in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and then twice Peter, once at the beginning of his ministry in Acts 4 and 11, quotes this verse of Scripture. And then at the end of his ministry, he says that Jesus is the rock of offense that was rejected by the builders. But that same stone has become the cornerstone. You know, we are likened to living stones. Men are likened to living stones. The Bible says that that we are living stones fitly framed together, the habitation of God through the Spirit, meaning that we are the temple of the living God. Living stones fitly framed together. Now, out of tradition, it says, the story is told that the 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 building of the temple, Solomon's temple, was, was, was so, the plans were so precise that, that you did not hear the sound of a hammer or the sound of a chisel on the building site as the building was being erected, that in the quarry, the stones were cut so perfectly and the plans were so precise that each stone, huge stones just fit perfectly into place, that the temple was built in relative silence as a testimony, really, to the Lord. And, and they would cut the stones at the quarry, and they would deliver them. And 
when it came time for the capstone or, or for the cornerstone to be put into place, the, the builders gave orders that the quarry should bring up the, the, the cornerstone. And they come back with this message. The cornerstone was already delivered. Now, now what had happened was that there was this huge stone that just, just didn't seem to fit in anywhere. And as a result of that, the builders set it aside. And, and as they were working, it kind of got in the way and the workmen kind of rolled it down the, the hill and it went down into the valley of Kidron. It was the stone that the builders had rejected. And then when they realized that the stone had already been delivered, they realized that was the stone. And when they brought the stone back into place and they, and they put that stone in its place, it fit perfectly. And it was the stone that held all the other stones together collectively. Now the day is coming, prophetically speaking, when Israel will look upon him whom they have pierced and they will mourn as for a son, for an only son. And who knows, but maybe they're looked now to retrieve the stone just as they did in the, in, in, back in the day. Maybe, maybe by, by the grace of God, Israel will once again look at the stone that has been rejected and receive it. There's much cosmic irony in this whole story here. The rejection of Jesus was the plan of God by which Jesus would become the Savior of the world. God used the unbelief of his people, kind of like a jujitsu kind of a move, you know. In jujitsu, you know, you use your opponent's strength against them and you leverage their strength against them. And God used their unbelief to leverage against them and to bring about the death, resurrection, and the ascension of his son. John Piper asks this question. He says, how do I move from being a child of wrath that is somebody whose destiny is misery and punishment and judgment? How do I move from being a child of wrath to becoming a child of mercy? One who is destined to receive kindness and goodness and mercy by God. He says, it's not because God changes. God cannot change. It, doesn't, it means that, that, that God never ceases to be a God of wrath, who has one attitude towards sin. He says the reason is because he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds were healed. What we need to see is that this horrific crime of the ages, while on the one hand it was the human rejection of Jesus by his covenant people. I mean, the very reason why Israel existed in the first place was to usher in the promised Messiah, was to bring forth out of the tribe of Judah all of those prophecies narrowing down from, from, from the house of Israel to the house of Judah. And then in the city of Bethlehem, he would be born and, and all of that. I mean, their very existence was to bring forth the promised coming one. And yet here he is, and for the last 2,000 years, Israel, as a people, as a nation, has rejected the Messiah who has already come. And God has used the unbelief of Israel to be the plan by which he would be, become the Savior of the world. And this, the psalmist says, is the source of our gladness. This is the source of our rejoicing. This is the reason why we've got joy. It was because of the predetermined counsel and foreknowledge of God that this came to pass. Some of you might be familiar with Isaiah's call 
to the ministry. It really begins in Isaiah chapter 6. If you've read Isaiah chapter 6, it's probably one of the most famous visions of Isaiah. It says it begins by saying it was the year that King Uzziah died. And I saw the Lord high and lifted up and the train of his glory filled the temple. And Isaiah talks about seeing these creatures, these, these living creatures called seraphim who were flying about the throne of God, chanting one to another about the holiness of God being, the whole earth is filled with his, with his glory. And he heard the voice of God say, who shall I send and who shall go for us? And Isaiah said, Lord, here am I, send me. And the Lord said, I'm going to send you to a people who have eyes but who, who cannot see, who have ears but who cannot hear, who, who will not understand and who will not believe. Could you, could you imagine having a ministry over a period of some 40 years of being sent to a people and they don't believe your message? I was telling the guys the other day that in, in I heard the, read the statistics that 1,500 pastors leave the ministry every month. 1,500 pastors leave the ministry because of difficulties and because of conflicts. But talk about, talk about a ministry that would see very little fruitfulness over a period of some 40 years. Isaiah had it pretty rough. Who has believed the report? But I want you to take a look with me this morning. We're going to look at a New Testament exposition of Isaiah chapter 6 and Isaiah chapter 53 from a New Testament point of view, okay? So follow along with me. This is John chapter 12. This is after Jesus had did one of the greatest miracles of all. He raised Lazarus who had been dead four days. He raised Lazarus from the dead, okay? In John chapter 12, verse 37, it says this, even after Jesus had done all these miraculous signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. The believing in him in that verse is saving faith. They would not believe in him. John says this was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, and here's the quote, 53 verse 1, Lord, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Isaiah Spoke it, John says, this is to fulfill what Isaiah said. And for this reason, they could not believe because, as Isaiah said elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and deadened their hearts so they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn and I would heal them. So, verse 41 says, Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and he spoke about him. Verse 41 says that what Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up and in the glory of his train. He says that was Jesus that he saw. And in verse 42, he says, Yet at that same time, many even among the leaders believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they would not confess their faith for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. Let me just back up a minute. There's, there's, there's more than one kind of believing. One kind of believing is believing and living. It's, it, we said last week that the simplicity of the gospel was believe and live. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, said Paul to one of the most important questions of all. What must I do to be saved? Believe and live. The simplicity of the gospel of grace. But there's another kind of believing. And, and James says that even the demons believe, but they tremble. 
They, they do not have a saving faith. Here, these leaders had a belief. They believed that Jesus was the Messiah. But you might remember that after his death and resurrection, they bribed the Roman guards to say that his body was stolen by his disciples. There's such a hardness of heart that happens even in the face of the truth and the facts, right? Verse 42, once again, yet at that same time, many even among the leaders believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they would not confess their faith for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue because or for they loved the praise from men more than the praise of God. That is the hardness of their hearts. They saw the praise that comes from men to be of more value, more precious than the praise that comes from God. This is the, the sadness of the sin of unbelief, how hideous the sin of unbelief is. To Israel, the man of glory that was spoken of by Isaiah was not glorious according to their standards. He was unattractive. There was nothing, no beauty that we should desire him. So when Jesus comes as the suffering Messiah, they reject him. They don't want anything to do with that. They want a Messiah who is majestic and mighty and powerful, who will overthrow the Roman Empire. But he comes meek and lowly of heart. He comes in absolute humility and in absolute weakness, which becomes in fact, the very power of God and the very strength of God. The sadness of Israel's state, their unbelief, this, this absolute hideousness because they preferred the, the glory of men instead of the supremacy of God. If you think about it, Jesus had an ever-diminishing ministry. His ministry went from crowds and the crowds stopped coming the last six months of his ministry the 70, the Bible says in, in John chapter 6, followed him no more. Many of his disciples said, this is a hard saying. Who can receive it? And they walked away from him. And many of his disciples, the Bible says, followed him no more. The, the 12 became 11. The 11 became 2. And the 2 became 0 as he was left completely all alone. I want you to think about this was the unattractive suffering servant, according to Isaiah 53, whose destiny was the cross. But here's, here, here, here's, here's a great truth, that every blessing that we have, whether it's physical or whether it's spiritual, can be traced to the source. And, and, and that source is what Jesus Christ suffered at the cross. Every blessing we have, every temporal blessing, every, every spiritual, every eternal blessing, every blessing that we have, can be traced back to the cross. A couple of years ago, the staff and I were traveling down to Atlanta, Georgia for a conference, and, and we, we flew down on Southwest Airlines. Southwest Airlines doesn't have assigned seats, so you're free to move about the, the plane once the plane takes off. If there's empty seats somewhere, you can change seats and you can go sit there. And, and that was a fortunate thing because on board that flight, there was a woman, and I don't mean to be you know, facetious or unkind in any way, uh, but, but she had, she had a, a foul and unpleasant odor. And the guys, you know, my, my, my esteemed colleagues, they, they, they scattered like squirrels up a tree, you know, once, once because we were sitting really close to her. And, and it really, it wasn't a matter of hygiene. 
that, that this odor was coming from this woman. I, I had just watched a show the, a couple of days before with my wife of uh, mystery diagnosis or something like that, mystery diseases. And, and, and there was a, a couple of people who, no matter what they did in terms of hygiene, no matter how many times they showered or, or what kind of mat wash they used or what kind of deodorant they used or, or, or perfume wasn't strong enough to cover a bacterial-causing smell that came from their bodies. And I recognized that, and my just heart just went out to this woman because of it, because these people suffer so immensely you know, even, even the very people that love them are repulsed and, 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 and you can easily gag in someone's presence like this. But I found that what was so amazingly interesting was that the way in which they can cure this kind of a disease is through bacteria that eat the smelly bacteria. Bacteria devouring bacteria. And I thought to myself, that is what Jesus Christ came to do. He was made sin for us that he might consume sin in his own body upon the cross. His death curing death itself for us. How ironic, but how effective. Every blessing that we have can be traced back to the cross. Even the blessing of, of receiving the Holy Spirit, having him guide us and teach us and having him anoint us and empower us, that is a result of the, of the, of the crucified one, the, the resurrected one, and the ascended one. Even that, every blessing that we have. The future blessing that we have of, of, of there being a day, and we're all looking forward to that, when we'll have glorified bodies, when we'll no longer experience death or, or sorrow or suffering or pain or sickness and disease, that'll all be passed away. And whenever we can reach into eternity now and, and bring into that a blessing of God's demonstration of what it will be by bringing healing into our present. It's a demonstration of God's goodness because of the cross. About four years ago, in November 26, 2008, there was a gang, you might remember the story, there was a gang of terrorists that went into the uh, Taj Mahal palace, uh, palace in uh, Mumbai, India. And when they got finished with their terrorism, 200 people were left in the carnage, dead. 200 people dead as a result of that. There was a reporter who was interviewing one of the guests who was in the hotel having dinner at that, at that particular time. And the guest described how he and his friends were eating dinner when they heard gunshots and somebody pulled them down underneath the table as the assassins came striding through the restaurant, shooting at will everybody, believing that they had killed everybody, but miraculously, this one person survived. When the interview asked him, how did you survive when all of the, all of the, the, the people at your table were, were, were killed? He said, he said this, he says, I suppose because I was covered in someone else's blood that they took me for dead. It's because, beloved, we are covered in the blood of another that God has taken us for dead in Christ, that we might be alive with him. And it's no longer I that lives, but Christ lives in me. In the life that we now live, we live by faith in the Son of God. It's because he's covered us. That's the very word for atonement. It means it's a covering. He has covered our sins. 
the very understanding of the Passover, that God says, when I see the blood, I will pass over. You will not, you will not come under judgment or come under condemnation because of that. I love this statement that was uh, spoken by Charles Spurgeon. He says, you can measure, you shall measure the height of his love if ever it be measured by the depth of his grief, if ever that can be known. You shall measure the height of his love if it be ever measured by the depth of his grief, if that could ever be known. Listen, I've been preaching the gospel for 35 something years. And I tell you, whenever I'm talking about the grief that Jesus experienced at the cross, I always come away dissatisfied thinking I did not do a sufficient job. And I think that will just always be. Because there's no way that we can sum up all that Jesus suffered and he endured for us. But that really is the measure. That really is the depth of his love and an understanding of his love for us. The gospel of Isaiah is a prophetic vision. It's a snapshot. It's a glimpse of the cross. The one who is marred more than any other man, marred beyond human recognition, bearing the eternal penalty that you and I deserved so that through his death, we might have peace, we might have healing, we might have forgiveness, we might have eternal joy. But when it comes to the description of the crucifixion the new testament really is kind of it's very brief there's a, a, a brevity about it that, that that seems to be designed on purpose by the holy spirit sam storms offers two explanations as to why that is that that it simply says and and, and they they led him away and they crucified him there's not a lot of the the, the, the details concerning crucifixion. Samson says, number one, in the first place, crucifixion was so frequent and so common a detail in that first century that it was probably unnecessary to be more precise. People in the first century were painfully aware of the, of the, the horror of crucifixion. He says, but maybe more importantly is the fact that crucifixion was so utterly repugnant so indescribably shameful that they deemed it improper to go beyond the barest minimum in describing the Lord's experience. I read some facts about the crucifixion and about the manner of, of, of crucifixion just to prepare for this message and found out that, that usually when, when a victim was crucified, he was, he was no more than two feet above the ground. And one of the reasons for that being was so that the the wild beast and the ravaging dogs would come and devour the corpses that were left at the cross. Jesus may have been spared that, not out of mercy, but so that he might be set as an example of embarrassment and shame. You see, one of the reasons why the first century and, and the reason why the Romans used crucifixion, it was a deterrent against crime. It was their way of, of keeping down the masses and keeping down the rebellions. And, and, and those that were crucified were so horrifically suffered. But you know what? It's, it's amazing. I, I, I read that Spartacus, you may have heard of, of Spartacus. Spartacus actually crucified a Roman to show his fighting army that this will be their destiny if they fail in their battle. Ironically, it was also said of Julius Caesar that, 
that Julius Caesar was merciful because before a man would be crucified, he gave the orders that, that his throat was to be cut because he didn't want him to endure the pain of crucifixion. But I, worse than the pain of crucifixion, worse than the pain of the cross, maybe the shame of the cross. And that might be hard for us to understand, and I plan on just unwrapping some of that for us next week. Matt Chandler, who's a pastor and well-known conference speaker, tells the following story of what happened to him when he was doing a conference in his hometown. He says, when I had done preaching, I decided to get in my car and drive into about 20 minutes away from where the conference was to, to visit where I used to live and where I used to hang out. And he says, as I drove into town, I passed a field, he says, where, where he once had a fist fight with a kid named Sean. He says, he says that he did some pretty shady and dark things in that fist fight. He completely humiliated this kid in front of a large crowd of people. He says, then I, I drove past my house and the thought came to me of the wicked things that I did while I was in that house. Then I, I passed by a friend's house where there was a party once and I did the most shameful and horrific things that I've ever done in my life. He says, and after this, I was driving back to the conference. I was overwhelmed with a sense of guilt and shame of the wickedness that I had done in that city prior to my knowing Jesus Christ. He says, I could hear the whispers in my heart. You call yourself a man of God. You're going to stand in front of these guys and tell them to be men of God after all that you've done? He says, and then I started to remember. I began to think about the scriptures and how that how that the old Matt Chandler was crucified with Christ and how that that old Matt Chandler no longer lived and that Matt Chandler who had sinned in those ways was nailed to the cross with Jesus Christ and all of his sins, past, present, and future had been atoned for, covered, paid for in full. He says, and then I remembered that my sins and my iniquities he would remember no more. If you're in Christ Jesus this morning, maybe you've been struggling with guilt, things that you've done in the past that keep coming up, that the enemy seems to know how to press your button to try to keep you from being all that you can be in Christ. It brings up those things and it reminds you of your past failures. Maybe even it reminds you of your present failures. But if you're in Christ, you have been crucified with Christ the blood of another covers you. God takes you for having already been crucified with Christ so that we could say there is now therefore no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. What I want you to know this morning is this. What I want you to take away is simply this, that out of the infinite love, Jesus absorbed the wrath of God's justice for all who believe. Out of infinite love, Jesus Christ became the sin eater. He absorbed the wrath of God. He absorbed the punishment that you and I deserve. Justice has been served. He has become just and the justifier of those that believe. Therefore, we could say with Isaiah, I, even I am he that blots out your transgressions. For my own sake, I will remember your sins no more. All of our crimes and all of our misdemeanors he has absorbed in his own body upon the cross. That's the good news this morning. That's the gospel, according to Isaiah. Let's pray. Father, I 
thank you this morning, O oh God, for this incredible news of, of what you were going to do 730 years before you did it, and then what you did and what you accomplished. And, and it is marvelous in our sight. It is the cause. It is the reason why, as the psalmist said, we have joy and we have rejoicing. And it's, it's marvelous in our eyes as well. Because you planned this. You, you used the unbelief of the nation to be the plan and to be the pathway through which Jesus Christ would be despised and rejected and then crucified, but that through his cross, his blood would cover and take away the sin of the world. And so this morning, Father, we pray that you would search the house. I don't know, maybe there's someone here this morning who's never made that transition, who's never made that transaction between, between knowledge and understanding and real believing faith that we are saved by grace through faith, that not of ourselves is the gift of God. I pray, Father, that that gift would be given this morning and received. It's offered. Whosoever will believe upon him will not perish but have everlasting life. That's what Jesus said. Out of his own mouth, Jesus said, God so loved the world that he gave his son, that whoever would believe in him, believe and live. That's the message this morning. And you could leave this place today having believed in him and having trusted in him and having eternal life and knowing that nothing, nothing will separate you from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus Neither life nor death, nor tribulation, nor things present, nor things to come. Nothing can separate you from this great love. Can we just stand and celebrate this morning like the psalmist says, to rejoice because this is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it.